Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. A new series uh, that we are calling Seek First around here. Say it with me. Seek First. And that is more than just a series. Uh, That is the theme of the Father's House for 2024. And we are launching that theme by considering some of the teachings of Jesus, a collection of them found in the book of Matthew uh, that scripture refers to as the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, if you were not here with us last week, uh, let me strongly encourage, beg, implore you if I could to go back and listen to the first message of the year in this series. Uh, Not because I thought it was particularly good, uh, but because it was foundational in understanding how to translate everything that we are going to consider in the weeks to come. We, we did a lot of foundational work last week, and I think it's going to be important for all of us to be on the same page as we, in this community, step into what it means to seek God first this year. Um, if you were not here last week, fear not. I'm going to give you just a little sound bite, enough to, to get you started, not enough to get you off the hook. You still have to go back and listen to it, uh, but enough to ensure that we can all receive uh, from the word today. Our key scripture for this text and for this year is found right about the middle of this sermon where Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, and let's read this together since it is our key text. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and he will give you everything you need. I threatened the last service. I said, that was so fun reading together. I might have you do the stand up, sit down, read the scriptures out loud thing. I'm going to get liturgical on you just real quick, all right? So just buckle up. We'll we'll have some fun with it. But as we started out last week, um, we, we looked at a couple of definitions. And specifically, we looked at this first word in our key text, the word seek, and asked ourselves, what does Jesus mean when he tells us to seek? For if we don't understand how he defines this word, we might find ourselves doing something other than the thing he's asking us to do. So we discovered that this word seek in the Greek is the word zeteo, and it means to discover by thinking, meditating, reasoning, and inquiring. In other words, to seek means you maintain an intentionally inquisitive mindset. You perpetually consider a source greater than yourself to inform your way of thinking and your way of living. To to be one who seeks first, as we said last week, is to recognize what the prophet Isaiah writes in the 55th chapter of his book, that God's ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts, Scripture tells us his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So we cannot presume as broken humans to live our lives down in this lower state of understanding. We need to elevate our gaze and consider a source greater than us to inform how we're supposed to do life on this planet. And then after defining this word, we considered the next statement Jesus makes, seek first the kingdom of God. And we looked at this kingdom he's asked us to remain intentionally inquisitive about, ultimately concluding that to be one who seeks the kingdom of God first is to be one who pursues the person of Jesus and the rule and the reign of Jesus in our lives by refusing to do anything without inquiring of the king first, which we reminded is not an easy thing to do But on the other side of it is a promise, and that promise is that if we do, he will give us everything we need. 
Now, as I said last weekend, this kingdom pursuit is only half of what Jesus is asking us to seek after in this text. There remains a second thing that he tells us we're supposed to seek first, which is a bit paradoxical when you think about it, but he tells us not to just seek the kingdom of God, but also his righteousness, for only in seeking both of those things will we receive everything that we need. So now that we've talked about the kingdom of God, I want to spend all of our time today talking about this godly righteousness that Jesus speaks of so that we can ensure we've set ourselves up as we step into all these teachings. Sound good? Come on, sound good? Talk to me, Eleven. All right, come on. I don't want to be in here alone, all right? I I want to to have a conversation. So I'm going to give you a title, and then we'll we'll pray and jump into this. Um, Some might be offended with this title, uh, but just stick around long enough, and you'll get offended a lot around here. Uh, It's a longer title, uh, but it is appropriate considering the content. I borrowed it from the musical prophet Marshall Mathers, a.k.a. Eminem, a.k.a. The Goat. And I'm calling this... I am whatever you say I am. And if that is not a song you're familiar with, just keep singing Hillsong, man. It's going to go better for you, right? It's going to be good. Let's, uh, let's pray and, uh, and ask the Lord to speak to us today. Jesus, thank you for these timeless words contained in Scripture, these words that flipped everything upside down when you walked this planet and have continued to do so for thousands of years. Thank you that we can come to the text and not just read it, but allow it to read us. And as we consider these words of Jesus, these statements that you made uh, to a group of disciples on the side of a hill, I pray that they would be personal, that the Spirit of God would awaken something on the inside of us, that areas of our life that are out of alignment would be addressed. We invite the conviction of the Holy Spirit, the voice of God to, to guide and direct us today. And Before we leave this place, I pray we would be convinced of the truth of your word, transform our minds, thereby transforming our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Or as Eminem would say, a mizzle. All right, Uh, that's inappropriate. Uh, It's actually Snoop. Anyway, uh, (laughs) he's got a past, all right? He's a pastor. It starts with past. It's fun. So before we get into the, the, too deep into this teaching today, we need to define yet another word. And specifically, I want to look at this word righteousness that Jesus mentions, because once again, if we don't know how Jesus defines this word, we might find ourselves seeking after something other than the thing he's asked us to seek after. So this word righteousness in the Greek is the word dekaiosune, dekaiosune, and it means being innocent, faultless, guiltless, or blameless before God. Innocent, blameless before God. Now, if I had handed the microphone around the room and asked everyone to define righteousness before reading that definition, there's a pretty good chance that that is how we would define it. That, that, that's how most of us think about righteousness. Essentially, it's perfection, blamelessness before God, which can be a bit discouraging on the front end of a sermon like this because when you see a definition like that, you are immediately confronted with the fact that you will never be able to measure up to God's standard of righteousness. Perfection, blamelessness, yeah, that's not me. Clearly the pastor listened to Snoop, I'm a mess too. So like, we're not gonna be able to measure up to this standard. But before we start you know, destroying ourselves, before we get a chance to get built back up, let's remind ourselves of another definition we learned last week. This is where it's important to understand exactly what Jesus is saying in the original language. He, he did not say, seek the kingdom of God and attain righteousness. He did not tell you that you are supposed to measure up to perfection and innocence to be without sin in your life. 
No, he said, seek first the kingdom of God and God's righteousness. And that word seek, we know, doesn't mean to become something. It means to inquire about something, to maintain an inquisitive mindset and go, okay, I recognize the disparity between my life and this standard you're speaking of. So I'm coming back to the king and I'm going to inquire how I might obtain this innocence and this blamelessness before God. This is why Jesus is very intentional about this possessive pronoun he uses when he tells us about righteousness. He doesn't say it's just righteousness by itself. It is God's righteousness, his righteousness, asserting that there must be some kind of a difference between the way we understand righteousness and the way that God speaks to it. So what does Jesus mean by God's righteousness? Well, he doesn't make this statement in isolation. It's a statement he makes in a greater context of this sermon, and actually he prefaces our key verse with some other statements about righteousness in the previous chapter. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, he says this. Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. But I warn you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you're anything like me, you've probably read that passage of scripture before and just breezed over it and then moved on in the rest of Matthew's writings. But, but I want to pause here for a moment because this, this, was, this was one of the most audacious statements Jesus ever made. Because of our modern social context, we're at a bit of a disadvantage. We don't understand the, the nature of what he's sharing with his audience. But the people who were present when Jesus taught this, this thought, this would have been mind-blowing to them. It would have flipped faith as they knew it on its head and maybe even served as a source of discouragement to them. For, for, for many of us um, who maybe grew up in church, you kind of know the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law. We've come to understand through teaching and through reading these words of Jesus that they were sort of the bad guys in the biblical story, right? Like we know that Jesus constantly criticized them because they were hypocrites. They postured themselves as righteous outwardly, but behind the scenes they were living a secret life and not doing what they said to the the public. They they were the people that Jesus constantly scrutinized and said, you're like a a whitewashed tomb. You're you're like a, a dish that's been washed on the outside, but on the inside you are filthy, but, but that is not how society at large would have looked at the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law. In their society, these men would have been considered some of the most righteous among them. They were the pillars of holiness, the, the men who, who served the house of Yahweh. They were the ones who could access the presence of God, the, the, the ones who stood before God on the people's behalf. These, these were men who literally memorized the scriptures. They studied them all day long, and they lived in strict inhe- adherence to the Old Testament. The, the story of Moses going up on the mountain for 40 days at Mount Sinai, getting the, the Ten Commandments, coming back down and delivering them to the people, that was not a history lesson for them. That was the foundation of everything they were doing and everything they had built their lives upon. In context, they would have been the people who were in church every single weekend, They memorized almost the entire Bible. They recited it regularly. They worshiped daily. They prayed for hours. They tithed down to the cent. 
They searched their lives to make sure that they had followed all of the rules. They were the pillars of righteousness in the society. And then here comes Jesus. Hey, uh, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the most righteous people you know, then you're toast. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Imagine being an audience member that day and the sting of those words. <laughs> unless your righteousness exceeds that of the holiest person you can think of, unless your righteousness exceeds Pastor Tim's, you laughed way too fast on that, Jazzy. What is it with my staff members? My goodness, dropping water bottles, mocking me from the front row. It's great. Let's be clear. It's Pastor Robin is the most righteous person we all know, right? Okay, I... <laughs> Or even if you think both of us are a hot mess, how about, unless your righteousness exceeds Billy Graham's, Mother Teresa, Unless you can live better than those guys, then you are wasting your time seeking the thing I'm asking you to seek because you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Those words are not just shocking, they are demoralizing. That's the kind of statement that upon hearing you'd go, why bother trying? If, if I'm supposed to measure up to this standard, there's no way I'm gonna ever live holier than that guy so I, I might as well just throw in the towel now. Uh, I, I, I've been trying to please God, but clearly it's not enough for Jesus. So, so I'm just gonna quit before I've wasted my life trying to live this, this holier than thou kind of lifestyle. But that is precisely what Jesus was hoping we would conclude upon hearing these words. That is exactly what he was hoping the audience would draw from these, these eternal words. He was hoping that they would come to this point where they realize, I will never measure up. He, he, he's telling them, you guys have been trying for 1,400 years. Ever since the time of Moses, you got this law. You've been trying to live up to this impossible standard. How's it working out for you? Have you been able to follow all the rules? Have you been able to make it more than a day? Shoot, more than an hour without failing and sinning? You know those sacrifices you keep having to offer year after year after year that Hebrews tells you is just a reminder of a guilty conscience, the fact that you're broken and you're never gonna measure up? It's not working for you. So I'm here now as a new Moses, standing on a new mountain, having spent my 40 days in the wilderness like Moses did, and I am issuing an invitation to a new covenant and a better way. A way that is not found in you living a perfect life, but a way that is only available in me. But this new covenant starts with a revelation that you're broken. <laughs> it starts with a recognition, I am never going to be able in my own strength to measure up to the holiness of God. As Isaiah says, even on your best day, your righteousness compared to God's holiness is like filthy rags. But only once we have concluded that, once we've come to that place in our hearts and our minds, are we able to receive the truth, to inquire of the king as to how we might become something that in our human nature we are not. So. Now that you know you're jacked, let's, let's, let's seek. 
Let's ask, meditate on, inquire of the king how we might receive this blamelessness and innocence before God. For that, we turn to the book of Romans. Uh, what I would consider to be probably the clearest explanation of this godly righteousness in all of scripture. I have committed much of this chunk of scripture to memory because I need to be reminded of this truth often. In fact, Michelle said to me before, and she's like, this is your life message, isn't it? Just, it's something that oozes out of me because I understand how broken I truly am. And I pray that you would understand how broken you truly are so that we can receive the truth that Jesus wants to give to us today. Romans chapter three, these are the words of Paul. He says, but now God has shown us a way to be made righteous that is not found in fulfilling the obligations of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made righteous by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who you are. For all have sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glorious standard. Yet God declares with undeserved kindness that you are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins, for God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made righteous when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. Isaac, keep that on the screen for just a moment if we could. In fact, let's go back to the first verse. That is refrigerator-worthy scripture right there. Dare I say tattoo-worthy scripture right there. I know I've told you two weeks in a row to get scripture tattooed on you. If you followed that advice every time I gave it, you would be covered from head to toe in scriptures, which, you know, might not be a bad thing. I don't know. We'll see. But I think this is some of the, the most important and foundational scripture in the entire New Testament. And I want to unpack it for a couple of moments. Paul starts by echoing the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 5. He says, God has shown us a way to be made righteous that is not found in fulfilling the obligations of the law of Moses. Translation, God has shown us a way to be made blameless and innocent before him that is not found in living a perfect life. That sounds pretty good to me. How about you? So tell me more. He says, we are made righteous by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who you are. I don't care who you are, where you're from, what you did, as long as you have faith in Jesus. Yeah. Is that Backstreet Boys? Before the Backstreet Boys was the Lord, all right? What's he saying? He's saying the ground is level at the cross. This is not a favoritism game. God does not accept some because of their merit and their performance while he leaves others out because they've sinned a little bit too much. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. Your past is irrelevant. Whether you've lived a great past or you've been a hot mess in your past, whether you've spent some time in prison or in county or you just lived with a tie and a suit and did the right thing all the time, it does not matter to Jesus. The cross makes it level for all. All can come to the feet of Jesus and receive this gift of righteousness. And yet he goes on to tell us exactly how we receive this righteousness. 
He says, for all have sinned. We've all fallen short. None are righteous. No, not one. In fact, the person in the room who thinks they're righteous is probably the worst one among us because self-righteousness is what God hates more than anything else. A revelation of our broken state is necessary. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's standard. Yet, with undeserved kindness, God declares that despite the overwhelming evidence to the contrary, you are righteous. Let's, let's marinate on that for just a moment, shall we? Let's simmer on those words for a second. This is massive. What Paul is saying is that in the moment you accept Christ, maybe there's some here this morning who at the conclusion of our sermon You'll lift that hand. You'll make that decision to follow Jesus. You'll confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That in the moment we place our faith in the finished work of the cross and the fact that Jesus' blood has paid the price for our sin, that in that very instant, God, the, the creator of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who sits on the throne ruling over the galaxies. The scriptures say the earth is his ottoman. It is his footstool. Elohim, El Shaddai, the beginning, the end. The almighty God who sits in heaven makes a declaration over your life. He speaks a word contrary to your reality and he says with undeserved kindness, you are righteous. Come on, that should stir something up on the inside of us. This, this is what Jesus means by God's righteousness. It's not one we attain on our own. It's not one we deserve by our behavior, on our past, on our pedigree. It is a gift that comes from God freely, a declaration that God makes over your life that you are not what you think you are. You are whatever he says you are. And the imagery that Paul uses in this text to display the truth is helpful to us. If we could read this in the original language in the Greek, we would see some beautiful imagery that he's using all surrounding a courtroom. In the text, the assumption is that you are on trial. You are standing before judge and jury and the evidence has been presented against you. And the evidence is overwhelming. You blew it, you made the mistake. You failed, you've fallen short of God's standard of holiness in this life. The judge knows it, the jury knows it, everybody in the courtroom knows it, and a verdict is about to be issued. But just about the moment the judge slams the gavel down and sentences you as guilty, an innocent party stands up in the courtroom and he makes a statement. He says, listen, we all know that they're guilty. We understand that the laws have been broken. And justice has to be served. Somebody has to pay the price for the wrong that has been done. But what I'm requesting of you just judge is that instead of taking the guilty party, you allow me to be the substitute. I will trade myself in and I will receive what the guilty person deserves so that the guilty party can receive what only I as an innocent party deserve. To which the judge responds, I accept your substitution. 
I will take the guilty party and make them innocent, but bind the innocent man and make him pay for the law that has been broken by the guilty man. And with my own lips, by the power vested in me, I declare over this room and over the individual that from this moment forward, they are justified, they are blameless, they are innocent. I have no evidence against them. They can go free and I'll take the innocent man in exchange. This is the gospel. This is the good news. That God has given us something that we could never earn on our own, but it is a free gift offered to all who place their faith in Jesus Christ. The God of the universe declares that you are righteous, to which we should respond with the words of this title. If that's what he says about me, then I am whatever you say I am. I'm not going to live by the lies I've told myself. I'm not going to listen to the accusation of the accuser of the brethren. I'm going to tune my ear to the one who created me and hear what he has to say about me. Come on, though I've failed, I am not a failure. Though I've made some mistakes, I am not a mistake. I listen to the king and he says, though your sins are like scarlet, I will make you white as snow. Though they are crimson, I will make you white as wool. And the same one that spoke the world into existence, the one whose lips created realities that did not previously exist, he speaks a contradicting reality over your life despite the evidence that says you're broken, you're worthless, you failed. He says, I call you something that you're not so that you can become it. I call you the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You are righteous because I said you're righteous. And what I say happens. His words possess creative power. I am whatever you say I am. Now, that is good news, but a revelation of this identity is not where it's supposed to end for us. As we've said many times from this stage, all of us live according to our perceived identity, meaning that our actions, the way we live our lives, is the byproduct of the way we see ourselves. So when I begin to understand what God says about me, when I accept my identity as the righteousness of Christ, guess what happens? I start living like a righteous person lives. We overcomplicate it sometimes. If you're convinced that you are the righteousness of Christ Jesus, the natural outflow of your life will be to live as righteous people live, to live according to the word of God. So, so when we start going through some of these teachings in the following weeks and we hear Jesus make these crazy statements that flip our understanding upside down that seem counterintuitive and countercultural, like love your enemies or bless those who curse you or live sacrificially or forgive those who've offended you, we're not supposed to see those through the filter of our brokenness. We're supposed to see those through the filter of someone who understands that I am the righteousness of Christ. These are not impossible carrot dangles that God is holding out there going like, measure up, jump higher, try harder. It's not what he's doing. He's saying, no, no, no. This is what righteous people do. And you are righteous. Therefore, you will naturally begin to do these things. Scripture calls it the fruit of the Spirit. In the same way that a fruit tree does not have to stress itself out to produce what it was created to produce. 
An apple tree doesn't have to go, come on, come on, apple. No. It just naturally produces what it was made to produce. And if you walk with the Spirit, when you understand who you are in Christ, you will naturally produce love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You don't go to strain to make it happen. It just happens because it's who you are. It is the natural byproduct. I love the words of the theologian N.T. Wright as he begins to synopsize this portion of Scripture. He says this about this concept. Now that Jesus was here, a way was opening up to Israel and through that all the world to make God's covenant a reality in their own selves. Watch this, changing behavior, not by teaching, but by a change of heart and therefore by mind itself. Translation, when you know who you are, you will do what is natural to do. I am, therefore I do, not the other way around. But there is a second benefit to this understanding in addition to recognizing your identity and living according to it, I, I think the subsequent benefit is that when I know I am righteous, I begin to recognize that every promise God makes in this book to righteous people is not a promise he's making to somebody else who's living a better life than me. It's a promise he's made to little old broken me. I'm borrowing it from last year. Every promise in this book made to the righteous is made to you and to me. So when we read things in this book, like in Psalm 5, God will bless the righteous. That's not somebody else's blessing. I'm a candidate for the blessing of God. When I read in Psalm 34 that God will deliver the righteous, I recognize I'm not made to stand in a prison cell and be bound by this thing any longer, but God will deliver me from this situation, from this addiction, from this mindset. I will walk in freedom because I am the righteousness of Christ Jesus. When I read in Psalm 58 that God will reward the righteous, I'm like, hey, I am a candidate for the reward of God. When I, when I read in Proverbs 4, the path of the righteous gets brighter and brighter and brighter until the full gleam of dawn. I recognize that I don't have to live in confusion or dismay or misunderstanding about where I'm supposed to go or what I'm supposed to do. I will have divine clarity over where I'm supposed to go and what I am called to do because that is a promise he has made to me. When I read in Proverbs 14 that God favors the righteous, I recognize I am a recipient of God's favor. When I read in Isaiah 57 that God gives peace to the righteous, I recognize that I I don't need to be vexed in my mind with anxiety and depression and worry and concern, but I can have the peace of God, the shalom of God that surpasses understanding. And when I read in Matthew 25, the words of Jesus, that the righteous will inherit eternal life, I can stop for a moment in the midst of the chaos of this world and go, Tim, this ain't it. There is something beyond this life. And whether or not I get what I'm hoping to get, whether or not the prayer is answered the way I want it to be answered, I know that there will be a day where I stare my maker in the face and he looks back at me and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy that has been set before you. And I'm not living for the here and now. I'm living for that moment because the righteous will inherit eternal life. But there's one promise that 
personally, I find myself clinging to more than all the others. And a promise that I wanna land considering in our final moments together, because I think it's one that we need to revisit, not just over and over again this year, but likely one that we'll have to revisit over and over again in this life. And that is this. When I understand I'm righteous, I understand that God has promised resiliency to the righteous. Uh, last verse, and, and the worship team, you guys can come as we prepare to conclude. Proverbs chapter 24. These are the words of Solomon. It's not a life verse for me, but it's definitely among the top five. He says this. Though the righteous fall seven times, they get back up. Though the righteous fall seven times. By the way, seven is not like the maximum number of times you're allowed to fail before God's like, well, you had your chance. You muffed it. I'm sorry. That's, that's not what he's saying here. In, in the Bible, uh, numbers are often uh, prophetic or have a deeper meaning, and such is the case here. The number seven, like in creation, is the number for perfection or completion, which at first sounds pretty encouraging until you realize what Solomon's saying here. He's like, though a righteous person falls perfectly, completely, over and over and over and over and over again, though you are a perfect failure, what distinguishes you as the righteous is your ability to get back up. Uh, this last week, um, I had an opportunity to take uh, both of my daughters on individual dates. Uh, years ago, somebody told me, if you don't want jokers to date your daughters later, then you need to date them now. And I'm like, sounds like good advice. I'll go ahead and take that. So I'm doing my best. Um, but uh, on Wednesday, I took my oldest daughter, Ellie, to a, one of her favorite places. Uh, we went and watched a Warriors game at Chase Center and uh, actually ended up getting us some pretty good seats for a good price. So we're sitting pretty close, which meant we got a really up close and personal view of them losing yet again by an embarrassing number of points to the Pelicans. Which is why during the fastest next week, I'm gonna focus a lot of my attention on the Warriors. I just really want them to live up to the potential that God has for their lives. <laughs> but uh, on Tuesday, uh, before I took Ellie out, I got to take my youngest daughter, Livy, to one of her favorite spaces, and uh, that's a place called Dave & Buster's in Daly City. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with Dave & Buster's, it is essentially a glorified Chuck E. Cheese, uh, or as I like to think of it, the grooming ground for a gambling addiction. I mean, think about it for a moment. What are we teaching kids? Go to the shiny blinking machine, put all your money into it, and then if you get anything in return, go spend that money in the very same place that just took your money, all right? So I'm just trying to train them up in addiction young, you know? I'm just getting them started real young in the game. Uh, but, but Livy and I, we are, we are very similar in our approach to Dave & Buster's. Um, we, we don't really care about the joy or the entertainment value of the games, we're all about the tickets. Like find me the game that is gonna get me the best return on investment for tickets and that's the game we're gonna play. So we show up and we kinda survey the arcade, walk around, try a few things and, and discover the optimum game for ticket uh, redemption and, and it's a familiar carnival game that maybe you've heard of before called Down the Clown. Anyone heard of that game before? Apparently not, okay. So uh, essentially it's three rows of all these clowns on springs and uh, your job is to take these little red plastic balls and you have 30 seconds to knock down as many of these clowns as you can <laughs> and over the course of 30 seconds if you rack up enough points then you you get a bunch of tickets at the end of it uh, by the way little piece of advice from uncle tim um 
If you go to Dave and Buster's, the game directly to the left of Down the Clown, I forget what it's called, it's like Breaking Dishes or something, it uses the exact same plastic balls as the Down the Clown game. So if nobody's on that game, you can borrow <laughs> some of the balls from that game to ensure you have enough ammunition. I didn't do it. I mean, I would never, I'm a pastor. I'm the bastion of holiness, all right, come on. You think that I would stoop down to the level of trying to siphon more tickets out of a reputable establishment like Dave and Buster's? Come on. But you can do it if you'd like. Uh, so, so, so Libby and I, we're, I mean, for the better part of 30 minutes, I mean, we are just, we're into this game. Like, probably too much. People are staring at us. We're like sweating, we're shedding layers. Like, she's like, starts yelling at these clowns. Like, she's, die clown, you know? And, like, is this therapy? What's happening right now? I, can, I can't remember if she used her sister's name at one point. But anyway, uh, so I mean, we're, just, we're just going for it, chucking all these balls at these clowns. And I, I, I realized pretty early in our gaming journey that the goal was not to knock down every single one of the clowns on the board. The goal was to focus on the higher point value rows because once you knock down all of the clowns in that row, they would begin to spring back up They'd smile out with this goofy smile, hey, and then there's like this real sinister, like give you nightmares kind of laugh, like and taunting you, like, come on, take me out again and throw, throw the ball at the clown. So, I mean, for half an hour, we're just racking up tickets. And after we're done, we, you know, we go over to the store and redeem it for some piece of junk that cost us probably $500 in gaming fees. Get in the car. And on the way home, I introduced her to Chumbawamba. I get knocked down but I get up again and never gonna keep me down. We joked about it. And then later on that night, I was sitting in our living room, thinking about the fact that I was gonna be preaching this message. And I took out my phone and I opened up the notes app and I wrote these six words in my phone. I want to be the clown. Oh, you, you, you didn't understand, okay. Los, do me a favor. Throw some of these balls at me real quick. Okay, you're getting too low. But <laughs> they're working their way down. <laughs> Last service, I was like, bro, you got a vendetta? What's going on here? Trying to take me out. I want to be the clown. I want to be the guy that, that when I get hit, I don't, I don't become the Christian that goes, well, this is my destiny. I've fallen down and I can't get up. Thank you, Steve Urkel and Life Alert. I want to be the believer that goes, wait, 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 this is not where I was created to be. I, I might have fallen, but I can get up again. And, and then when it happens again, <laughs> I fall. <laughs> oh man, I, I told God I would never do that thing again, but I did that thing again. And in my mind, I think I'm supposed to stay down here because that's where God wants me. But according to scripture, I understand that this is not where I'm supposed to be. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead 
lives on the inside of me. And so when I fall in my purity or in my thought life or I get angry and I blow it and I yell at my kids or I make a decision without consulting God or I fail to pray or I ignore the conviction of the Holy Spirit, I don't stay in failure. I don't recognize that falling is, is fatal, but I get up, I dust myself off and I say, no, I'm gonna keep running the race that God has called me to live like a clown on a spring. I'm gonna get up with a smile on my face for the enemy to see and say, no, I'm not done. I'm not staying down. My God declares with undeserved kindness that I am righteous. And if I'm righteous, that means I can get up again. I can keep running. I can keep trying. I can keep fighting until I recognize that my actions align with my identity. Though I fall, I get back up. Why? Because I am whatever he says I am. And so are you. And maybe you're here today and, 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 and you're on the ground in the spirit. Don't stay there. People start making their bed and building their houses in failure like it's where they're destined to live. Now get up. Get up. Dust yourself off, remind your soul of what God says about you, and keep running your race. Amen? Well, let's pray as we conclude today. Jesus, thank you for this reminder. This reminder that we are not what we've done. We are not where we've failed. We are what you say we are. And today, as we sit in your presence, I pray that that simple phrase would go beyond our cerebral knowledge and it would settle in each and every heart. God, that we would be convinced, convicted that we are not a failure. We are not worthless. We are not unlovable. We are not unusable, but we are who you say we are. And, and maybe today before we conclude, there'd be some people in the room that I spoke of a few moments ago, those who find themselves in a space where they're distant from God today. And you need to hear the voice of your maker speak over you. You are righteous. I've chosen you. I love you. I forgive you. You know that the Holy Spirit is drawing you right now to rekindle. Maybe you've been at a distance for a while. You need to rekindle that relationship with him. Or maybe, maybe you've never even heard the good news of the gospel. And you're here this morning and God's saying, hey, I brought you here for this moment. If that's you today and you know that you need to get things right with God before you leave this place, would you be bold? No one's looking around, but just slip up a hand and say, Tim, I need to pray a prayer with you and give my life to Christ this morning. If that's you, come on, lift up your hand right now. Thank you. Got you, bro. Back, yeah, awesome. Yeah, I got you right here, bro. Awesome. Cool, right there. Hallelujah. Yeah, got you over there. I see you up there. <laughs> Hallelujah. All right, here's what we're gonna do, family. I want you to pray out loud with all these making this decision so they don't feel alone. Just repeat after me. Say, Jesus, today I give you my life. I thank you for giving yours for mine. I choose to follow you, to be your disciple. Forgive me of my sins and help me to walk in your ways from this day forward until I see you in eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, let's celebrate every single one of those giving their life to Christ today. Hallelujah.
Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we want to pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.